0: Welcome to the podcast series of the Notre Dame Program of Constitutional Studies. The Program of Constitutional Studies here at Notre Dame fosters research and teaching on the philosophical principles of constitutional government and the American constitutional tradition. Enjoy today's podcast. We have a very special guest, Professor Helen Alvarez. Helen Alvarez is a professor of law at the Antonin Scalia Law School at George Mason University, where she teaches family law, Law and religion and property law. It publishes on matters concerning marriage, parenting, non-marital households, and the First Amendment religion clauses. She is faculty advisor to the law school's civil rights law journal and the Latino-Latina Law Student Association, a member of the Holy See's Dicastery for Family, for laity, family, and life, a board member of Catholic Relief Services a member of the executive committee of the AALS section on law and religion and an ABC News consultant. She cooperates with the permanent observer mission of the Holy See to the United Nations as a speaker and a delegate to various United Nations conferences concerning women and the family. In addition to her books and her publications in law reviews and other academic journals, Professor Alvarez publishes regularly in news outlets, including the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Huffington Post, and CNN. She also speaks at academic and professional conferences in the United States, Europe, Latin America, and Australia. Prior to joining the faculty of Scalia Law, Professor Alvarez taught at the Columbus School of Law at the Catholic University of America represented the US Conference of Catholic Bishops before legislative bodies, academic audiences, and the media, and was a litigation attorney for the Philadelphia firm of Stradley, Ronan, Stevens, and Young. She received her law degree from Cornell University School of Law and her master's degree in systematic theology from the Catholic University of America. Professor Alvarez is a longstanding friend of Notre Dame, has come out here many times to speak, and is a recipient of the Evangelium Vitae Award for her work in the advancement of life. We want to thank the Tocqueville Program, the Director Philip Munoz and for Soren Hansen for co-sponsoring the lecture, and we welcome those who are attending on Zoom. We will have a Q&A period at the end of her lecture in which we will take questions um, first from the floor, and then if there's uh, time, I will turn to Zoom participants. So join me now in welcoming Professor Helen Alvare.
1: Thank you, Dan. Can you hear me? Yes. I'm going to resume. Good. Excellent. So hello everybody. And um, thanks for having me. Uh, I have a daughter out at Notre Dame, who's lucky enough to be attending in person also. So I'm very fond of you guys. Um, uh, when I sat where, where you are, um, I believed already that the study of God was intrinsically the most interesting thing in the world. I would never imagine that I would be speaking to a class of students and others from the perspective of really now over 35 years uh, career in the church so that you can see sort of how my perspectives and work arose, I thought I would give you a little bit of the, the personal fabric of things in addition to my the professional resume that Dan gave you. So um, I think I would call myself a cradle Catholic with questions. Uh, very much was I a strident feminist of the 1970s. Um, I would say definitely I would call myself a feminist still. Um, women's rights or human rights um, obviously resonates. Uh, I began watching my you know brilliant nuns, which I had loads of in grade school. um, but I wondered why they weren't sort of running everything at the parish. Um, uh, I watched my extremely smart mother graduate you know first in her class from college, <clears throat> and I wondered, why she was dedicating all her time to domestic things. I, I, I wasn't sure I thought that was good. Um, I asked why God gave me such a huge academic appetite if I wasn't supposed to use it. Um, I asked why the church was so insistent against contraception when the work of children would always fall to women. Um, I understood the abortion teaching pretty clearly from the very beginning, even while I was bumping up against many of the others. I, I knew <clears throat> that the, the only response you can make to human life to respect it was, you know, first of all, not, not to destroy it. But I was always troubled by the stance on contraception. So those questions have, have never left me. At the same time, throughout all that time into today, um, the church is always mother to me. Um, it, the personal exemplars I've encountered in the church are overwhelming. Um, my late and very disabled sister was loved and cared for in incredibly personal and daily and, and charming interactions um, by the people in my church community. Um, I knew that Jesus's life um, was absolutely a sure guide to interpreting and facing reality, and it sure beat the other isms that, that I reviewed in the course of my life. How could I not be in favor of human beings living with radical openness and affection to every human being? So I I struggled to reconcile that with my misgivings about the church. I went to law school frankly, with the idea of working in some kind of church meets world uh, legal capacity. Um, I, I chose a law firm very specifically because it, it was um, uh, it represented many churches, including the Catholic Church. It was founded at a time when Catholic lawyers were not welcome in the largely Protestant law firms of Philadelphia. And so these Catholic guys, uh, four of them from Harvard, founded their own firm. And then they became a, a sort of a mecca for church-state relations law. Um, I also went for a degree in theology, uh, the masters and a couple more years into the doctorate before I decided to take a job offered to me to figure out my sense of the uber importance of God alongside trying to live as a a woman, a lawyer, and then eventually a wife and a mom. Then I go um, from a, a big law firm to the US Bishops Conference in Washington, which is right across that river over there. Uh, and I ended up, um, and it was kind of interesting that they were so open to it, writing really pro-life feminist Supreme Court briefs. Then they asked me to move into the pro-life office because I had this background in law and religion. Uh, and I I really was, you know, uh, the abortion issue a- attracted me. Uh, I was uh, 29 at that time when I went into that office. Um, because of it's just the 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 argument for abortion just seemed to me an argument against truth and and against um what women were experiencing or what the world really ought to affirm for them um there was also a a need and and vocation is part call part what need is there in the world that you can fill and i felt that i had the, the the skills to do that job. (laughs) Um, After that, I've been a professor now, um, it's 21 years now, where I explore um, law and religion themes and the family. And because of the times we live in, um, these things often cross one another and I end up doing law and religion as it bumps up against family law. Um, I also have various roles with the Vatican and most recently with the Organization of American States. I'm the Vatican delegate on the question of women. (laughs) so most of the time um, you know I'm grappling with questions of doing justice to my husband my kids and and my work all at the same time Um, so that's that's a whole additional talk Um, but what I want to talk to you about today and the order in which I'll take it is, um, you know, charges that that the church hates women and sex, which are very much overlapping charges. And then I want to challenge those. And then I want to acknowledge what's still problematic in the church's life and voice, uh, vis-à-vis both these charges. So um, the first charge is that the church hates women and sex. Um, and and again, these are overlapping. The brief against the church, broadly speaking, here is first that you know, contraception and abortion, which have almost become conflated in the eyes of of the secular feminist movements—not all of them, but some strands—contraception um, and abortion are claimed to be right the ultimate. Liberators of women. (laughs) Um, That, you know, women get pregnant, um, women give birth, women do the disproportionate amount of care for children. Um, This is the major difference between women and men that has held women back. Um, The linking of procreation to sex is also. uh, you know, dragging sex down. Benedict XVI uh, has a great line in his encyclical, God is Love, where he says, the charge against the church is that they, quote, blow the whistle on sex when it is just about to become divine. I, I don't think the words blow the whistle on sex are in any other encyclical. I, that one is my my favorite. Um, there was this notion, too, put forward by Margaret Sanger, by the inventors of the pill, that if you just could free sex from from its relationship to procreation, it would be incredible. Margaret Sanger says that a woman would begin to worship her husband and sex would become the holy path to a new enlightened universe. Um, uh, The people who invented the birth control pill um, at Searle Pharmaceutical, um, when they were selling it to doctors, they brought a gold uh, bust of Andromeda and she was pulling chains open over her neck and and it just said unfettered. Gave this to all the doctors who first um, prescribed the pill as sort of, you know, the, the gist of what it was all about to, to free sex to make it what it ought to be. Um, also, of course, contraception and abortion were argued to free women for, for work, for money, for the purview of males, where, you know, in the corner office, and for the kind of worldly respect that men were getting for the work that they did, which did not involve children and women were not getting. And of course, then. Once you've made children, the, the, a problem, you know, for women and a problem for their freedom. Then you're you're going to move to to abortion because contraception fails. If you look at the CDC's reports on that, really for years it's hovered around a 12 percent annual failure rate. Um, you know, about 50 percent of the patients going to abortion clinics, according to Planned Parenthood's uh, former research arm Guttmacher Institute, um, were using contraception in the month they got pregnant. So if children really are the problem, then contraception is never going to suffice. Uh, Abortion is going to be necessary. In the Supreme Court's Casey decision upholding legal abortion, they referred to to abortion as the backup for contraception's failure. And that's that's the argument for it. And then, of course, the Church is portrayed as opposing all of that potential freedom. Um, A second part of the brief against the Church is its teachings about the place of women in the Church and the world, as if we should be cabin to home, Um, not leaders in the world and not priests in the church or otherwise leaders in the church. You know, this is the the reputation, even though the New Testament and um, the church history contain really remarkable statements about Jesus's regard for women. Um, Never, you know, minimize the importance of Mary as the exemplar, not just for women, but for human beings at large. Jesus is very frank and loving and open relationships with women, revealing divine things to the woman at the well, to Martha and Mary, um, having women be the first to, to see and grasp the resurrection. But of course there's parts of particularly um, the epistles that seem to confirm women's secondary status, language about our not speaking in assemblies, covering our hair to cover our shame, and of course, in the, from the early church to today, the church seems simply to sort of reproduce the surrounding cultures relegation of women to limited roles, not to see them as important voices in the world, not to allow them to be priests or hierarchy. Also, there is the question of, you know, is the church's voice missing in the world today on the great struggle for women's dignity, equality, freedom, struggle against violence, etc.? And there are still complaints about the lack of women in church leadership. So let me now give you some responses to these. Um, On contraception and abortion, you know, right away, um, despite my upset at the church (coughs) beginning at a young child over the contraception teaching, um, I did have to wonder how it was that feminism's sort of leading charge, um, and you see this in politics too, you know, women's causes are so often reduced to contraception and abortion. The leading charge was that, the country needs to make sure that women can avoid um, being and doing what makes women different. We need to help women avoid um, pregnancy, childbearing, um, rearing children. And right away it occurred to me that a more feminist response would be that the world accommodate what you know we can't change, which is inevitable about, um, about women's biology, that we are capable of these things generally. Um, why wouldn't the world accommodate women's differences and, and our preferences regarding um, how we want to um, have children in stable relationships, have someone else to help us care for them, be able to work while taking care of children for many women? The forwarding of you know, silencing and, and abnegating and denying and even destroying um, women's capacity to have children as this sort of feminist charge elicited a suspicion in me that those forwarding this idea have really first imbibed the notion that the male is the ideal and the woman just need to conform to what he is. Um, this led me to even more suspicion that any program based on these um, uh, facts for for contraception and abortion as their leading uh, matters could really be feminist. Um, with abortion, there's the question of of, of, a, of a feminism that would be willing to embrace killing as a means to an end, which also means a, a willingness to deny science. I mean, there really isn't any scientific <coughs> um, idea that what a woman is carrying is neither human nor alive, and of course we find uh, in those supporting legal abortion as a feminist proposition, really um, an utter denial of the post-abortion harm that women suffer. And I mean, we can go back and forth about studies you've seen, et cetera, but but it's undeniable that thousands of women approach post-abortion healing and reconciliation services really on a monthly basis. We also have the fact that really all help to to single moms and women in crisis pregnancies um, and poor single moms um, is is almost all on the side of pro-life advocates, including largely the church. I always thought it was so stunning that abortion advocates have, have no services for women in crisis pregnancies. And this too elicits my suspicion about, their program for women, but what about contraception? I don't think it's overstating it to say that this is perhaps the strongest piece of the church hates women storyline, and it's undoubtedly true that contraception has enabled some women to avoid children, or to allow them to, you know, to, to finish school or to get a particular job, and even to avoid abortion. Uh, John Paul II acknowledged this in um, in in his writing. But I don't think this should be considered apart from the economic and cultural contexts, which led women to believe in the first place that they should or have to really engage in sex outside of some form of committed relationship. Um, That is, in a relationship that really can't, maybe at all, let alone easily welcome and sustain a baby or a culture and an economy that tells women that they really should not get pregnant and raise children in order to succeed. What I'm saying is that I don't think you can consider birth control without thinking about the technology driving it. You know, like the technology of, you know, the world in our hands and mobile phones. We know that social media has changed our understanding of how we need to behave in relationships. You know, how quickly we have to answer an email or what particular forms of social media connections and the speed with which we do them mean. Birth control, too, has altered relationships between men and women, men and women, both both individually and socially, and, and a lot for the worse. Again, I, I don't judge people who find this a hard teaching to get or who find my argument um, um, you know, difficult. I'm just saying, there's an awful lot of literature out there that supports it from from a nice logical basis, and it is not generally Catholic literature. It's from you know the Anthony Giddens, the, you know maybe the greatest sociologist of the 20th century, Zygmunt Bauman, uh, the philosopher who wrote Liquid Love, uh, Sarah McClanahan, a, a sociologist at Princeton, Janet Yellen, the, the, the Obama's uh, uh, chair of the Fed. Um, <clears throat> The church adds to their argument that men's and women's relationships have been problematized by (coughs) making sex weightless. The church adds that its understanding of of, um, the association between sex love and procreation um, really matters, that women are easily exploited when, when sex becomes not about tomorrow at all, not about love, family, kin, children, but really um, just about the moment. It, it makes no pointing toward tomorrow at all. When we think about the fact that God put procreation at this place that we have come to understand, um, sex we associate with love, you know, usually people do. <clears throat> what does that mean? <clears throat> and, and 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 we find that anything we say about sex really needs to be informed by the fact that it intrinsically doesn't just unite people, but Because it has this procreative potential, when again, God could have done it any other way. Kids could have grown in fields. It could have been just the man, just the woman. He could have sent each one directly from his own hand. Um, But he, he puts it at this intersection of male, female, and love. So if you remove either of these aspects of sex, if it's robbed either of its unitive aspect, you know, it's not about love. It's not about me relating to you in some profound way. If you remove the fact that it intrinsically points toward the morrow, you you really do end up undermining even just the couple's love itself. Um, And it also ushers in a world where children don't get the care of the two people who made them. It changes the sex, dating, and marriage marketplace, if you will. <clears throat> the best article on this ever was done by Janet Yellen, um, again, the Obama's Fed chair, and her husband, the Nobel Prize winning economist, George Akerlof. Um, and, 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 and they chronicle in a sort of law and econ, technology and econ piece, how women feel more pressured <laughs> to have non-marital and even what the new literature calls non-relationship sex, like sex before you have a relationship. It's the first day you've met, it's the second day. That women are more objectified, leading to pornography and more Me Too problems. That we have more, not less, non-marital births uh, since the advent of uh, contraception and abortion. Um, That we have more, not less, divorce. We have more abortion. We have more, not less, children without stable parental care. Um, It was predicted that all these indicators would go in a positive direction, but instead they've gone in a negative one. A final thought about contraception and abortion. The church has come a long way from its outright um, suspicion um, of sex. Um, and uh, that is definitely true, and all of them, the contemporary popes have acknowledged that it went too far in that direction. And it understands sex as a good gift made by God, but of course its voice on this is hugely undercut by the sex abuse scandal. It still needs to get this articulated for the people in the pews and express how its teachings on sex are not mere moralism, you know, rules, rules, rules for purity and controlling people, but ultimately an application of the great love command to love God and our neighbor, but applied within the realm of male, female, and parent-child relationships. Uh, And then, of course, we have, as I've suggested really just a moment ago, the evidence that the church's way of doing sex marriage and parenting actually, and we've really only known this in the last like 40, 50 years, actually empirically is the way that promotes freedom, dignity, equality, stable families, that the the largest gap between the rich and the poor in the United States is not race, it's not immigration status, it's family structure. And people without stably married parents, um, and that is now in the United States largely poorer Americans, and it can also break down along racial and ethnic lines, those folks are are disadvantaged from a very early age um, economically emotionally, educationally, on average. Of course not everybody, but enough so so that it now constitutes this family structure difference that is between um, marital and non-marital parenting situation, the largest part of the gap between the rich and the poor in the United States. Let me turn finally to women's leadership in the church in the world. I'm going to try and end in 10 minutes so that we have 15 for conversation. There is significant evidence, of course, to women's importance um, to God. Um, in in, in the New Testament. In the early church, you didn't only have the crucial work of women disciples and the spread of Christianity, but copious evidence of the interesting and unique importance of virgins and widows. This was really new. Roman society, you know, they wanted you to get remarried. They really didn't have a, a way of thinking about virginity that is sort of putting your relationship with God above your relationship with anything in the world in first place. (laughs) And, and, and this, um, these, these widows in particular had a lot of wealthy widows who did not remarry and donated an extraordinary amount of time and resources and discipleship to the church. Interestingly, there's huge evidence from the work of Rodney Stark, Peter Brown, Kyle Harper about the attraction of women to the church precisely because of their teaching on sex marriage and parenting. They hated polygamy. They really did not like husband's ability to, to set them aside in divorce so easily. Um, They didn't like, you know, women's being punished for adultery, but men not so much. Um, They really hated the heartbreak of being forced to have abortion or being forced to put their daughters or their their weak, you know, sick uh, newborns out on the hills to die. They really loved the husbands love your wives as Christ, you know, loves you. um, And and the teachings in the church about the necessity of, um, of faithfulness in marriage and care for your children. There's a really fun observation from the fifth century, um, which is a time during which high-placed men were really a little nervous about converting to Christianity so as not to compromise their their public position with their secular overlords. But their wives more often were accepting Christian baptism. So St. Augustine writes to a Carthaginian nobleman named Firmus, Or firmus, we could pronounce it. And he says, Oh, firmus, so unfirm in purpose, you men who all fear the burdens imposed by baptism, you are easily beaten by your women, chaste and devoted to the faith It is their presence in great numbers that causes the church to grow. And this is often noted in histories of the church by the authors I just referenced. Thereafter, in the church, you have huge influence from women martyrs. I mean, you when you when you see the martyrs being named in the New Testament and in the early church documents, there's you know roughly equal numbers of women and men. Great influence from the church's mystics, Hildegard, Catherine, Therese, the great abbesses of religious orders and the saints. But you know, even closer to home and in our neck of the woods, you've got women's roles in the church in the U.S. Um, I mean, I've come through, I'm writing a book um, related to this on the subject of the number of women, you know, bravely founding hospitals in the wild, hundreds and hundreds of Catholic hospitals, largely founded by nuns in the U.S. in the 19th and early 20th century. And of course, women also founding and leading major institutions, educational, social services. In fact, from time to time, Uh, In the U.S., all the very leading um, charitable, educational, and healthcare uh, services run by the church are run by women 100%. Um, Interestingly, a study has also been done showing that in diocesan leadership, you have a higher percentage of women doing the leading, you know, the C-jobs, the CFO, the COO, etc., in Catholic dioceses than you do in American corporations. I find that um, not surprising given my experience, but, um, but interesting. Um, At the same time, of course, we've got the Ulmer priesthood, which is a real stumbling block to a lot of people. Let me tell you, it's not an area that I am really theologically sophisticated in. Please consult, and there's, her articles are online, Sister Sarah Butler, who used to be head of women's ordination movements, and then uh, theologically changed her mind. <clears throat> she makes observations about not forgetting the, the valorized role of lay people that uh, the church um, has, especially since Vatican II, and especially because lay people are everywhere, and, um, and clergy are in very few places relatively, uh, the, the, the influence and importance of lay people. Um, and she calls lay people's overstating the importance of clerical uh, people, uh, lay clericalism. <laughs> um, there is also the fact that the church does teach about, not that it doesn't want to ordain women, but that it feels itself theologically unable to depart from a tradition that has such long history in the church, even in early Christianity, even when Jesus, who broke all rules, could have done otherwise, and the importance of representing his incarnation as part of our experience of the clergy and therefore God. Let me add to this that it's also the case that beginning for the most part during Vatican II, but extending to today, the Church has issued a raft of documents updating and clarifying its stance on women in a really positive direction. Um, I'm very happy for them. Let me give you a whirlwind, 3,000 feet tour. Vatican II, Gaudium et Spes, celebrates advances in women's equality in the world and the family. John Paul II in his 19, um, this is 1998 document, Mulieris Dignitatum, on the dignity of Women. Crucial contributions about the fact that the differences between men and women are always alongside equality. I mean, isn't that really the ideal we have in the U.S., to hold diversity and equality side by side? And he says the male-female pair is the first place where we learn to do this. His statement in Mulieris Dignitatum that the... Um, the purpose of differences between human beings is not so one could be above or below the other, but so that they can gift one another with the differences that they have. All differences are for gifting. Again, think about that in our current conversation about race or immigration or poverty. If we really imbibed this idea, beginning from the male-female, that all differences between people were solely for the purpose of our being able to give gifts to one another. He also reminded us in Miliaris Dignitatum that the world should support the differences uh, and preferences that women exhibit. I remember seeing him at a forum at the Vatican um, where I was working at the time. Um, And he met a bunch of us who were working on women's issues. And he's very shaky hands at that point. And he holds up his finger, and he shakes it, as, and he says in Italian, I am the feminist pope. And then he throws his head back, and he starts laughing. he really did see himself as deliberately breaking new ground in that. He also reminded us that the image of God, you know, we think about, oh, we're an image of God. We have free will, <coughs> um, we have this great dignity, but we, we have the ability to reason. But the image of God is also relationality. He lives in a trinity. And, and John Paul II points out in Muliaris Dignitatum that women who are you know, um, the first to know they're pregnant, who give birth, who disproportionately care for children in the world, are charged with reminding the world that life, all human life, is primarily about being in relation and not primarily about me, me, me he states that men's domination, which was taken to be sort of the way of the world, the natural order, is actually a way of, is, is a result of original sin in the world, and it is definitely not the natural order of things. In his 1995 letter to women um, for a UN World Conference that I participated in that uh, was on the the equality of women, he apologizes to women for the church's role in in, um, subjugating them in the world. In 2004, Pope Benedict writes, and I have about one more minute, and then I should be done. Uh, Pope Benedict writes, in the collaboration of men and women in the world, that every sphere of society needs women's contributions. This was an advance on prior Vatican documents that I saw as expressing a little bit of a, well, women are going to go out in the world. They're they're not solely going to be taking care of children. Um, So make sure that they can do justice at home while they're doing work. this document went further and said every sphere in the world needs the perspective that women bring to it as it needs the perspective that men bring to it. So let me just wrap up with some conclusions and shortcomings. While I think the church has a lot more to say for itself than the brief against the church um, currently acknowledges, I still think that it is not sufficiently present in conversations about how to advance women in the world. Um, Now, things that you don't see every day, Um, you know, when I'm working with uh, the Permanent Observer in New York or the the Organization for American States here in D.C., we're working to advance the interests of women every day. I mean, tomorrow I'm talking to to 10 ambassadors from various Caribbean countries. Last week, I think we had eight ambassadors. And and it's all about, you know, the dignity and equality of women. People don't see it. Uh, the work that is being done, I think, frankly, they should step up their public presence in this to places where people will see it and the church becomes more of a voice here. I still think there is not sufficient advising of women at the Vatican level. Um, There's still a great deal of old boy and new boy um, um, (laughs) atmosphere then. Uh, women's Missing Voice in, in years past on the issue of sexual abuse in the church was a, was a bad example of this. Um, I think its teaching on women's priest is not accessible to most people. Um, it's it's there, they have some good things to say for themselves. Most people don't understand them at all. You haven't really finished communicating unless your audience understands what you're saying and you're actually deemed to be present. So in some, I think that the church has a genius anthropology about women, some genius statements, but its operations haven't caught up with it yet. At the same time, as a woman who values reason and intellect a great deal, I couldn't imagine uh, a religion also without a God who loves women a great deal. Um, I, I need female exemplars and role models to survive and thrive in this world. I value their guidance for sex marriage and parenting because I understand it as you know a, a way of helping me learn to love permanently and faithfully in a, in a world that makes that challenging. For all of those reasons, I still find the Catholic Church a very congenial place to be, even though, you know, like me, she is always on the way and never fully perfect. So thank you very much.
0: Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Alvarez. And uh, now we would like to open it up to uh, questions from the floor in, in our class. And, um, I invite your questions. ask your most honest, toughest, heartfelt questions. Great. We already have one ready to jump in here, so great. and just say your name and then your question.
2: okay, I'm Talia Harb. Um, my question was, how do you think that Christian women should read verses in the Bible like like women can't like shouldn't have teaching authority over men, like be silent, <coughs> like women should cover themselves like those kind of verses?
1: Yes, yes, yes. so thank you there's. Um, there's, again, I'm, I'm not a biblical scholar and you've got seriously good ones there at Notre Dame, but um, th- there is a great deal of biblical commentary that tries to um, sort, first of all, it often does you know, etymological studies, what it is that they were actually saying versus how we interpret them in English. Second, there are those that are more historically conditioned and those that <laughs> are, you um, uh, uh, some things that are not and are really a breakthrough theologically in light of the event of Jesus Christ. Then there's also the fact that um, that you have competing verses. You have, you know, a statement uh, by St. Paul that, you know, talks about um, mutual subjection of men and women to one another out of reverence for Christ. So all of those uh, readings and competing verses have to be taken into account. Um, there is, and, and, and there's lots of sources that do that, particularly on women. I really advise you to look at um, Moliere's Dignitatum, and I advise you to look at um, uh, uh, the collaboration of men and women in the Church and the World uh, by Benedict when he was at the CDF. Um, there are, you know, again, affirmations of cultural things that were against women, but with then some movement forward. Husbands, love your wives. Well, that, that was not understood to be any obligation of men at that point, let alone mutual subjection of men and women. So there's, there's an affirmation of something, and then there's a pushing forward to a, a truly more Christ-like and more uh, enlightened by God view of the world. So I encourage you to pursue those. Thank you. Okay, great. Great question.
0: Hi, I'm Monica, and my question, I know you said you weren't an expert or anything, but it's about that, like, women and priesthood thing. So maybe I know that you said that the church wants to keep, like, doesn't want to change the tradition, but why <laughs> was it there to begin with?
1: Right. So the, the there to begin with is because Jesus, who kind of broke every mold there was, uh, appointed uh, 12 males as uh as his, uh, apostles. And, um, and while he had crucial roles for women, women, you know, traveled with Jesus, women traveled with the, um, with the, uh, apostles. I think just last week, um, St. Paul is my favorite, uh, uh of all the, the, the apostles because, uh, he's such a wild man. And um, St. Paul had lots and lots of women traveling <clears throat> in the company of himself and other apostles. And it just refers to these women, and I forget their names, Priscilla, one or two others. And then it says, and they provided for the apostles and preached the good news. I mean, um, so it. So the first is to say that Jesus who broke all molds did not break that one. and And second is to say that we are a very incarnational church. We 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 want to understand that the things of this world and are important, and the fact that uh, that Jesus was he was a male, that he had males who went out to represent him in particular ways. It's a way of our keeping touch with the idea that that material things matter, sex matters. The the other side of this coin though, is that the church wants to caution you and me and others that the idea of saying, well, because some people have particular roles means that we're lesser. There is absolutely nothing in the church that says that you and I have a lesser role um, in in the world uh, as the, the, the ongoing presence of Jesus Christ because we are not priests i mean that's a form of clericalism say uh, maybe on your part and mine that we say huh you know they're the only people who get to do important things i think if you actually sat down and thought about what was important vis-a-vis your relationship with god your relationship with a parish your catholic education etc you would find that it wasn't things that came through priests that constituted the most important aspects of those things in your life. Um, You know, if you think about teachers in a Catholic school, the nuns who founded Catholic hospitals, conversations that actually bring you face to face with a love so amazing that you know that God is alive and, and living through this person. I'm betting that most of those things did not come by way of of an ordained person in your life. And and to say that the only important things that happen in the church um, come through ordained men is a form of clericalism on our part. That said, I... If the church really feels this way, and that's what she says on paper, then women should be hugely represented at synods. Women should be hugely represented in any kind of body that the church is appointing to think about church meets world, or to think about the church speaks to the world, um, and I mean, you know, Francis is, is coming a distance on this. Uh, Benedict did a lot. He he was, uh, you know, extremely active in the office of women at the Vatican that that I served with a terrific staff there and a lot of great women. Benedict has appointed a ton of women. I think on the Vatican's economic um, overseer now. I think he has. Um, I don't know. It's like there's like eight. I forget what the, the it's it's 14 people, eight lay, you know, nine clergy. And I think like now six out of the the nine lay are women. He, he's trying to move to actually bring women's voices into more places. Um, so if we mean what we say, what I just said, then we have to demonstrate it by having women in, in more of these places.
2: Um, kind of, oh, sorry. My name is Jenny. Um, to go off that what do you say about the problem of none of these roles, even if all of the lay people in the community you were just talking about were women, none of them were will be figureheads or public speakers? Um, and therefore, the women in the church, even if there are a lot of them, do not have public roles and aren't seen.
1: Yeah. Well, I don't know what diocese you're in, but I would say that they do have public roles and are seen a great deal. Um, in dioceses and in the church um, and and internationally as well. Um, if you sort of tune in to what's being done on the part of the church, um, you know, I know, just because I've done it myself, but I'm not the only one, you know, hundreds of other women in the church who has, whether they're the director of, you have lots of women who are head of the diocesan canon law tribunals. You have lots of women who are head of Catholic education. You have lots of women who are head of Catholic hospitals, Catholic social services, um, you know, again, just, I think it was as of two years ago, women headed up the national and international um, Catholic uh, entities of every one of those, of those kinds. And they are seen, and at the at the United Nations, at the Organization for American states, um, we we often have an all female team um, speaking on behalf of the church. Um, i um, I do think they, they in in more cases, they ought to put women out, um, even where some bishops are speaking. Bishops have a certain kind of training. They've spent their life in a combination of uh, prayer and study and experience with Catholic people. Um, you know, they have a, the special charism of ordination. Um, but I think people, some of the things that bishops are front and center for, um, I think a lot of people might like to see a woman by his side or or on her own. Um, but women are definitely there. If you actually go and, and take a look, um, it's not hard to find them. Something about the Vatican, like how it's a, almost like a boys club. Well, I was, I, I, that made me think about sort of like how we have male and female dorms here at Notre Dame. Is that an issue to have, you know, semi-fraternal or full fraternal societies, a full sorietal or semi sorital society Is that really a bad thing to discriminate strictly based off your sex? Well, you know, discrimination is a loaded word. The word discriminate simply means to choose between things. You know, I, I discriminate in favor of, you know, oranges not apples. Um, it's a question of whether it's unjust discrimination. Um, unjust discrimination is when, you know, a freedom or a right that someone should have, uh, an equality and dignity is being denied. There is nobody's denying your dignity or your equality when they have single-sex dorms. Um, the purpose of those is to provide sort of a comfort level for living for those people uh, who, you know, you know they, they. Um, they feel more comfortable sort of in a casual environment, running back and forth between the bathroom, et cetera. Uh, if they're in a single sex dorm, you're by no means prohibited from, your, in your own life, choosing to have dignified, equal, Uh, wonderful, close, mutually supportive uh, relationships with women. There's nothing about uh, a dormitory that prevents you from doing the right thing in your life and having um, the the kind of relationships with women that sort of, you know, recognize their dignity and capacitate uh, all their good gifts.
0: Now we have a question from Alejandro Williams Becker, who's Zooming in uh, via the Tocqueville program. Can you unmute yourself and ask your question Alejandro?
2: Yes, sorry. Well uh, it's a privilege for me to be here. I am joining you from Argentina, the land of Pope Francis. I work with, uh, very close to him in interreligious affairs uh, and I follow Arnard a lot from your work and from uh, Daniel Philpot's work too. Um, I, I took part recently in the uh, Latin American summit about Catholic uh, feminism, feminism with Marta Rodriguez, which I think that you yes, yes, goes <laughs> So, and my thoughts after that uh, summit were: uh, how can we advance towards uh, uh, Catholic and pro-life feminism if <clears throat> we have done so badly and so slowly in renewing the Church? After the the Vatican II and also in in advancing in the um, our understanding of the consequences of uh, John Paul II anthropology to uh, uh, you know to approach these matters of gender, uh, sex, uh, sex relationships and so mm-hmm. that's my question. Thank you. Bye.
1: So much, Alejandro, and it's a pleasure to speak to you from that wonderful country, which I have visited several times, and it's gorgeous. Um, So a couple of things. First, I would say that I believe we have advanced a a sort of um, more holistic uh, feminism um, in the last, say, 30, 40 years. Um, The women like myself are... Are happy to take the label of feminist, even as it is somewhat controversial, because we understand it simply means that women are human beings in the image of God. <clears throat> the 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 thing it is there is a great market, if you will, among um, uh, Catholic women for the message that our differences and inclinations, you know, we we like getting married on average you know and by by a, by a big majority um we love we we love our children um we we want to do justice to our children and there is a real market for a a vision of feminism that affirms all of that and so yes the the difficulty is that the uh the the, the voice that feminism equals contraception and abortion, that feminism um, equals um, resisting marriage as a patriarchal institution, that that is so strong that we never have a field to ourselves. We are always in huge contest With this point. And it is if, at first, we have to get over the hill that says, no, 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 we don't hate women because we uh, have these teachings on sex, marriage, parenting. So, um, you know, a good communicator doesn't just say, no, I don't hate you. (laughs) They begin by saying, that's wrong, but let me tell you how my vision is loving, does support women's Uh, desires, preferences, uh, their actual freedom, their actual dignity, Um, but we frankly, and here's my last point to you, we we need more women who are willing to give their time to this message, and um, now we know that women are, I think, um, in the United States, you know, either at 50% or maybe even a majority of graduate theology students. People have to be brave. You don't have to be political. You're just putting forth principles and, and things for the common good, you know, for the good of women, which is for the good of society. But frankly, women are going to have to be willing to take some risks and take what we have, which is beautiful, and put it in a, you know, not negative, but positive manner and be brave about this to really advance it. The, the, the anthropology is there. The, the skills and the willingness to advance it less so. <clears throat> gracias, Alejandro.
0: Thank you, gracias. For that, we... Oh, thank you, thank you. We even patched in a participant from Argentina, which is wonderful. And so uh, for that, we also have to thank not just Miraculous, but the technological savvy of Soren Hansen, and we also thank the Tocqueville Forum for their co-sponsorship. But most of all, we want to thank Helen Alvarez, and uh, for uh, speaking to us, for taking the time to share her thoughts with us. And uh, join me once more in thanking her for her, her talk.
1: Thank you very much.